You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, I grew, grew up snowboarding on Minnesota's version of mountains. And at some point in that time, I learned that if you wanted the real experience of snowboarding, you had to head out west. And I was blessed uh, in college. I had the opportunity to do so. I took out a trip out west to Vail, Colorado. The first morning I was there, I woke up really early, got my lift ticket, got right to the mountain. I'd studied the map for a while. (laughs) I knew exactly which chairlift to get on, which one would take me up to the top peak. I wanted to get to the very top of this mountain. Exiting the chairlift at the top, having kind of moved over to the edge, I was standing right at the realm of where flat land meets nearly 90 degree downward land. And I found myself swallowed up by what I saw. Just sky, just gigantic blue sky all around in front and before me. Down below, lines of trees and boulders so far away, they they looked almost toy-like from where I was standing. And all everywhere in between, just this steep, cavernous, snow-covered space. There may have been people around me in that moment. If there were, I did not notice them. There may have been sounds going at that time. If there were, I did not hear them. I was entirely engulfed by the situation, in awe of the awesome. In that moment, the sense of wonder and fear and excitement and joy and all of it in overwhelming amounts came in and flooded me. I felt totally inadequate for the situation, and yet I felt completely invited into it. I had no words. I just stood there. I just stood there, mouth open, no words, silence, awe, and joy. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. To some, it's a word that falls flat and feels stale. To some, praise is a word that feels more like a preamble. A word soon to be drowned out by words more important than it. Because of how often we see it in scripture, even we in the church hear the word praise and we skip over it like it's a mere formality. Psalm 65, one, praise is due to you, O God in Zion. Okay, 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 let's move on and figure out what is this psalm actually about. But tread carefully, brothers and sisters, Praise has an object. Praise always has an object, and there is nothing ordinary about the word praise when it comes to its ultimate object, God himself. God turns praise into a quite intrusive word. With God as its object, praise seems to cut loose from all its civility and all its domestication. It's as if when God walks into the room, the word praise just shakes and awakens everyone around it and says, look, 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 look who just came in. 
Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. Be amazed. It's a phrase, it's a word fit for bowed heads and bended knees. Now, along with this word praise in this first verse, in the original, is this word that connotes silence. Paired with praise, it puts a sense of anticipation into the air as you read it. It's as if praise is due to you, O God, or praise is marked out for you, or praise awaits you. Praise is coming, and we wait for it. We wait for it. And even as we wait, the silence itself truly is praise. The silence allows the awe and wonder of God to just hang there. It allows the reader to to say, slow down, slow down, slow down, hold on. I am a human being beholding my maker, and I just need some time to take it all in. Swallowed up in the reality of God, engulfed by all that he is, there's really no words fit for such a moment. At least not right away. Just silence and awe and joy. Now I got a hint of it standing on top of a mountain in Colorado, but we get it in full force here in Psalm 65. So this is the tone of the entire psalm. It's the tone as the psalmist takes us through the various ways that God works on behalf of his people. And we can see it, we can outline it in essentially three main categories. God supplies his people with life. God saves his people from death. And God satisfies them in himself. God supplies his people with life. He saves his people from death, and he satisfies them with himself. So first, God supplies. It's our first major point in this psalm, and it's one that's going to be relatively easy for us to spot, especially as we turn to the latter half of this psalm. In fact, if you look at verse 11, verse 11 really says it all. You crown the year with your bounty. From verses 9 to 13, that's really what we see. A year-long, God-supplied growing season from beginning to bounty-crowned end. It begins with watering, verse 9. You visit the earth and you water it, you greatly enrich it. And then we see this interesting phrase, the river of God is full of water. When I first read that, I wondered which river is he talking about? Is he talking about the Jordan River? Is he talking about the Gihon Spring? And there's people who think different things on that. But the argument I'm most convinced is that it's not really talking about a river down here, but actually up there. The phrase is conveying the fountain of God, the heavenly storehouse of God, which is ever at a surplus. The idea would look like this. You visit the earth and you water it. You greatly enrich it. And the reason you can do not only that, but verse 10, you soak the ground until it's soft. You pour forth rain on its ridges until they give way. And the reason you can is because your river, your storehouse is ever full. 
it never runs dry. We might say, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he owns the water in a trillion clouds. Did he not possess enough to flood the whole world? So, part one of the growing season, God waters the earth, and then as the year progresses, and the months of planting and watering turn into months of first growth, the the psalmist says of God, again back to verse 9, you provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. And you say, what grain? Where is it? The psalmist says, look to the wilderness, verse 12. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. And look to the hills, verse 12. The hills gird themselves with joy. And look to the valleys, verse 13. The valleys deck themselves with grain. And look to the flocks gathered upon the meadows. This is verse 13. See the sea of sheep and goats as they gather to feed in such a number that their sheer size seems to clothe the hills in this white wool. And listen, listen, verse 12 and 13, as the harvest and the flock shout together and sing for joy. Listen, as praise to God and delight in his word seems to ring out from every leaf and every lamb in the land. And lastly, check out the harvesters. Past the days of watering, past the days of first growth, would come the days of harvest. And here they come, verse 11. They gather so much that their wagon tracks overflow with abundance. Just picture a harvest piled up so high upon the wagons that it showers off the top as they carry it from field to barn. It'd be like, it would form like a little breadcrumb trail of God's goodness to his people. This is the abundant supply of God, his happy harvest in the world. And to a people living in a largely agrarian society, it meant life. It meant life. God supplies his people with life. Now I want you to think for a moment, imagine a timeline. We're going to take this timeline and we're going to call it the timeline of God's working on behalf of his people. The way the psalmist describes this year of giving, year of God working for his people, it's kind of, it forms the solid line all throughout this timeline. God supplies his people with life. That's the consistent, regular, year-to-year pattern of how God works on behalf of his people. So hold that timeline for a moment. God supplies his people with life and he saves his people from death. Here on the timeline is not necessarily a thick line, but intermittent large dots. God supplies his people with life. That's the consistent thing we see from year to year. And then all throughout there's these intermittent dots labeled God saves his people from death. Don't think death in the more common sense, like death of old age or a common illness. Think of large-scale, epoch-making, chapter-in-the-history-books type death. Think armies, think plagues, think natural disasters. Dotting this timeline at intermittent points is God saving his people from those types of threats of death. 
Now, where do we get that in this psalm? Jump up to verses 5 to 8. The language is a lot different here, is it not? The tame, picturesque view of grain fields and meadows is preceded, verse 5, by awesome deeds. You answer us with righteousness. Some translations have it, by terrible deeds. You answer us with righteousness. There's a sense of holy fear bound up in this action of God. We could say it this way. If God is gardener who supplies, verses 9 through 13, and he is warrior who saves, verses 5 to 8. We see this strength, this awesome power of God right away exercised in God's creation of the world. Verse 6, it was by his strength he established the mountains, being girded with might. The mountains. Can you, can you even comprehend the amount of mass of one tiny mountain? This is all the mountains in all the world God established. He said to them, stand up, stay there until I tell you otherwise. He said that to all the mountains in this world. That's the strength of the God you worship. That's his power. And... He continues to exercise that power. We see his awesome strength in his creation of the world and in his continued reign and sustaining of the world. See verse 7. God is the one who stills the roaring of the seas. God is the one who stills the roaring of the waves. Why did the flood of Noah ever dissipate? You ever, you ever just wonder that? What caused the waters to recede? Or why do flash floods or tsunamis or hurricanes, why do they ever give way back to calm? Because to all those gallons of raging waters, God says, and he still says, peace, be still. In his creation of the world, the psalmist says we see God's strength. In his continued sustaining of the world, we see God's power. And perhaps especially, we see his awesome deeds worked out through his sovereign rule over all the kings and all the nations of this world. Don't miss this. We're still in verse 7. Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples. This is the raging of the nations. All throughout history, kings have arisen. They've produced weapons. They've amassed armies. They've drawn up battle plans. They've made empires. And God has stilled every single one of them. Where's Babylon today? Where's Assyria God has and continues to still the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the nations. And here's where things just get way too cool. When God saves his people from death, particularly when it's a threat of death from an enemy force like Assyria, Babylon, Rome, whoever, he not only succeeds in saving his people, but along with them, 
God wins the nations. He not only succeeds in saving his people from death, but in the train of these victories, he calls the nations to himself. Look back to verse 5. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. Now look. The hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest of the seas. Let's just, let's just ask about that logic for a second. By awesome deeds, you answer us. Okay, got that. Oh God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth. You answer us, you become the source of hope for them. How does that work? Answer is found in verses 7 into verse 8. Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that. So that. That's a result clause. It's going to tell us what happens when the God of the universe saves his people from death. You still the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. You make the going out of the morning. That's, that's the east. Where does the sun rise in the morning? It rises in the east. You make the going out of the morning and the evening. That's the west. Where does the sun set? It sets in the west. You make the going out in the morning, you go out, going out the evening to shout for joy. Do you see what's happening? The land shouts for joy, verse 12. The flocks join in the shouts of joy, verse 13. And yes, yes, the nations, even the nations, they too, as a result of beholding the awesome deeds of God, they too shout for joy. God's work on behalf of his people catches the eyes of the nations around them, causes them to look and say, the one who did that could have only done that if he was the God over this whole thing. And as I think about that, I feel my heart inclined toward him. I feel myself wanting him. I feel myself saying, woe to me if I am not counted amongst his people. Do you, do you believe that? Do you think that that could actually ever happen? The Jews had been slaves in Egypt, the powerhouse of the world at that time. God answered his people by awesome deeds. He sent Moses, he sent plagues, he split the sea in half and he smashed it down upon Pharaoh's head. A deed so awesome that the inhabitants of Canaan so many miles away, they heard of it. One of its residents would come to say this, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away for, for we have heard. We have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt. What you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. 
There is no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God in the heavens above all, above and on the earth beneath. How did Rahab come to worship the God of the universe? She heard of God's working of awesome deeds on behalf of his people. So God saves his people and he wins the nations in his wake. Breathtaking, right? Yet there's still something here. A supplying of life that surpasses all the grains and all the flocks. A saving of death that overshadows all the glories of all the stillings of the sea. The psalmist says, verse 3, When iniquities prevail against me, could translate it, when my sins prove too strong for me, when they seem to rise up above me, like this dark, menacing ocean wave threatening to come pouring down upon my head, when I stand before my sin like that. Now, here's where I actually want to pause. I want to pause because I fear that many of us actually rarely feel that about their sin. We rarely feel the threat of death that attends the sin we indulge in. For many of us, sin is just kind of a normal part of life. It's not our enemy. It's not our foe. It's akin to like that extra slice of cake in the fridge. I know it's not good for me, and I, I don't plan to eat it every day, but here and there, every once in a while, I'll get the enjoyment of eating it, and it's certainly not going to do too much damage to my body, as long as I keep it at that kind of rhythm, right? Every couple days. To many, sin is the thing that knocks at your door, and when you open the door and you look at it, you say, oh, you're actually not too menacing at all. I'll let you come in as long as you promise to leave by 10. Your sin, your sin, if you were left to fight it all on your own, your sin would prevail over you. It would. Your sin, if it was just up to you, your sin in one corner, you're in the other corner, bell rings, you stand up, you are going down if left on your own. When David says, when sin prevails over me, he's not using prevail as a throwaway word. It's a victory saying, that thing's about to get to victory, I'm about to get defeat. Now, if you think that I'm exaggerating, I invite you to look outside and see how many millions of men and how many millions of women are absolutely being ruled by their sin. Even more, and so sadly, I ask you to go to any church and ask for the list of souls who have destroyed their relationships, destroyed their marriages, destroyed their souls by allowing their sin to prevail over them. When iniquities prevail against me, see, David's not messing around with that word. He's not playing games. 
He's telling the truth. Iniquities prevail against people. So what I want you to do is picture that sin in your life right now that you think you got a handle on. Picture that sin in your life that you think you've established a boundary with and you're going to go no further with it. Brothers and sisters, there have been plenty of others before you who felt similarly about their sin. And today they are laying upon the ground with their sins foot upon their necks. Make no mistake, your sin aims, it always aims to prevail over you. Now, having pressed all the way down upon that spring, having pressed it all the way down to the floor, now is the time to hit the switch and let the spring launch and send us heavenward. For as David says, when sin prevails against me, when sin thinks it's defeated me, when sin sin thinks it's got me down for the count, God says, no more. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. God saves his people from death. God says to us, down on the ground with sin upon our necks, rise up. Your sin will not be authoritative over you any longer. God atones for your sins, my brothers and sisters. God atones for your sins. He saves his people from death. And that's not even all. God supplies his people, yes. God saves his people, yes. But more than anything, and the thing that the whole thing is heading toward is God God satisfies. God satisfies his people. Look at that word atone in verse 3. It's not mere God forgives his people. It's a special word. It's atone. God makes atonement. He atones for his people. Atone is an old word. An old Middle English word. It combines the concepts of at and one. Atone kind of asks the question, like, where are you at with God? How's your relationship with him? And then Atone answers that question. I'm at one. I'm reconciled with my God. He's my father and I'm his child. Brothers and sisters, here's where things come together. To the one who'd say, great, God, makes, God atones for my sin. I'm just going to go back to normal now, knowing that I'm forgiven. To the ones who'd say, great, God makes atonement for my sin. I'll see him in another 70 to 80 years when he takes me home. Brothers and sisters, don't make the mistake of thinking your salvation merely consists of you being saved from destruction. Do not make the mistake of thinking your salvation, Christian salvation, consists merely of you being saved from destruction. Yes, to be saved from death. Yes, to be saved from hell. Yes, to be declared not guilty. It's one of the greatest enjoyments of the Christian life. But it's not the greatest. God doesn't settle for merely saving his people from death. He atones for them. He makes them at one with him. See, the greatest thing in all of life, the very point of all of life, is to be brought near to God. 
at one with him. Not only being pulled up out of the grave, but being sat up at his table. That's the point. Now, a gospel where freedom from death is the highest aim is a hollowed out gospel. I want want to make sure you hear that. A gospel where freedom from death is the highest aim, that is a hollowed out gospel. Brothers and sisters, if nearness to God is absent from the picture, if at one mint with God is not at the very center, don't you hear your hearts crying out for more than that? Than just being saved? Don't your hearts saying that's not enough? I don't merely want to be freed from death. I want, I want, I want something else. I want something better. Don't you hear your hearts saying, I've been made to be filled with so much more. If intimacy with God is not in the plans, if nearness to him is not in our future, if fellowship with him, if satisfaction in him is not at the end of all things, our souls would starve. See, what you need is not to be merely saved from death but satisfied in life with God. And what your spouse needs is not merely to be saved from death, but satisfied in life with God. What your children need is not to be merely saved from death, but satisfied in life with God. What your neighbors need, what your coworkers need, what all the people in all these cities need is not merely be saved from death, but satisfied in life with God. Kenny and Milena will have more to say at the commission. But brother, sister, you know what Orlando needs? They need a church planting couple who are not merely saved from death. Who don't preach a gospel of merely being saved from death, but being satisfied in God. So we say thank you, thank you Jesus for Psalm 65 verse 4. 4. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. That, my brothers and sisters, is what we set our sights upon. That, my brothers and sisters, is where we find satisfaction, nearness to our God. And now, this is where I'll close. Getting to preach this Psalm, having gone, just gone through Leviticus and Hebrews, it's just been really fascinating. When you read that, blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts, David, who wrote this Psalm, is most assuredly not talking about the common Israelite. As we saw in Leviticus, at the time of David, it's the priests who are chosen to go near to the courts, to dwell therein. It's their priests chosen due to their bloodline through Levi and uh, Aaron. But note the change in grammar in the second part of verse 4. You see it? 
Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. That's the priest. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. What's he talking about? The priests go near. They're the blessed ones, right? The priests go near, and we, on the outside, we shall be satisfied. Of the five major sacrifices, put your Leviticus hat on just for a quick moment. Of the five major sacrifices prescribed in Leviticus, one came at the very end called the peace offering. And it was during this peace offering that the common Israelite got to do something that he never got to do at any other part of any other sacrifice. It's at the end of the peace offering, signifying what all the offerings had done before it. It's here at the peace offering that the common Israelite sits up to table. Priests, common Israelite, God himself, sits up to the table and partakes of the feast a portion of the sacrifice set aside for them. The priests go near, they offer the sacrifices, we get to sit up to table as a result. My brothers and sisters, that is what brings us now to this table. For we have a high priest who has offered a sacrifice and says, now come and eat with me. Here we are, an assembly of the royal priesthood, celebrating that God has atoned for our sins. He not merely saved us from death, but he brought us near. He raised us up with him, and we get to enjoy him forevermore. So if you're here today and you've trusted in Jesus, we invite you to take and eat. If you've not put your trust in Jesus, we ask you let the elements pass. You not partake, but we pray you would in this very moment, you would draw near be saved from death so that you can be satisfied in him forever. I'll invite the pastors to come. We'll distribute the bread first. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.